So in the 1950s, there was a Polish cultural attaché, which you just got to love the word attaché. It just rolls off so lovely. Think diplomat if uh, you have no idea what attaché is like, like me this previous week, and you read that word and you then like double-click it to you know, bring the dictionary up. So yeah, think diplomat or a representative of another country. So in the 1950s, a Polish cultural attaché found himself stuck between allegiance to a country and the integrity of his values. You see, th this attaché's name was Czeslaw Milos, and uh, Milos represented his art and really the art community of Poland to the world. So he would go abroad and, and invite people to, I don't enjoy the culture of Poland. And yet what happened was in the early 1950s, Stalin's communist curtain fell something fierce in Poland, and it was sudden and it was dangerous, it was violent. And so in a moment, you had this dramatic change of life. Speech all of a sudden was different. The conduct, how you lived in the world was different. And it, essentially, your whole lifestyle shifted in a day. And Milos found himself uh, among these other quote-unquote intellectuals all of a sudden turning from integrity to their values and artistic exploration to essentially being evangelists of a new kingdom with a new message of freedom and hope. And you see what, what would happen is they would begin to say these things publicly though they were not true internally because the risk was so intense. And, and Milos, eventually, he leaves that space because he cannot hold on to himself while also trying to be someone else. I mean, can you imagine a, a, a type of life, a way of living where you present one reality out in the world, but inside there's a whole other thing moving on? Out, on the outside, you are one thing to these group of people and then another group of people, but inside there's some different movement where you're wanting who you are or who at least you think you are to be able to be known in these spaces, and yet there's a wall. And as Milos had time away from that space, he, he borrowed this idea from the Muslim community, and this idea is called Ketman. Has anybody heard of Ketman before? So Ketman is this idea that Muslims who are under persecution, they would have internal devotion. So externally, they would look no different than the world around them, and yet internally, they would say, we, we, are, we have integrity here. And, and this would actually be a practice. These would be the, the scholars and, and the imams would encourage this type of practice so that this cultural heritage would carry on. And Ketman, in short, is a mental defense, this kind of way of living with contradiction. And one journalist describes Ketman like this. It says, Ketman allows those adept at it or good at practicing Ketman to create private sanctuaries of the mind untouched by compromise, even as compromise flows through the rest of their lives, or floods the rest of their lives. See, Milos, he ends up likening uh, Ketman to the role of an actor. And 
you play this role so frequently and so intensely that at some point there is this internal division that begins to disintegrate and you no longer know where the character ends and you begin. It's as though you become the role you're playing. I, I, this is, I mean, if anybody has seen on the Netflix this uh, Anna Sorokin, anybody, no, I'm the only one in this room who's seen that. Yes, I did watch it. And uh, you be, start to become this persona, this person who is not quite you, and yet it may be who you want to be, or it may not be who you want to be at all. You start to live into this new identity of sorts, and it slowly decays yourself of who you are. See, curiously, though really not in the same language, this is what Jesus is talking about when, in the scripture that we just heard read. So he, hear this again. This is, these are Jesus' words, verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, if it is no longer salt, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now what I'm going to ask is that you just press pause on the conclusions that you've drawn as you come into the room today. If you came in here and you're like, oh, we're talking about salt and light today, I kind of already know the conclusion of the teaching, be salt, be light, let's just take communion and be done. So just press pause on that for a moment, and let's just, let's just receive Jesus' words as they come to us, as though he's speaking, speaking to us for the first time. And it would be helpful for us to just remember who is surrounding Jesus. And to do this, let's just look back before the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. This is who Jesus is with. This is who Jesus is inviting to remember who they truly are. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, or gospeling the good news, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about Jesus spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill. Pay attention to the descriptions here. All who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and Jesus healed them. Then large crowds from around Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the regions across the Jordan followed him. This is who is with Jesus. And even as I read this, I, I have, I think, a fragmented view of who these people are, what their conditions are. And, and it, of course, it would be challenging for us to, like, transport our back. But there are beautiful artistic representations of this. I had no idea that in 2018 there was a, a movie, or if we could call it a film. Let's just call it a film. Uh, turn our nose up at it. Uh, called Mary Magdalene. And has anybody seen this? It's, it's beautiful. Like, Joaquin Phoenix... Um, the portrayal of Mary, the, the woman who had demons cast out of her, the way they tell this story, um, it, it, like, it captures a tone and a mood of Jesus, a sense of urgency, and yet his proximity to people who in that space you aren't allowed to be around because, like, look, look to your left for a moment. Now look to your right if you have women on either side of you and you're a male, or if you're a female and you have men on either side of you, this is bizarre in the context of the scriptures. When people would go into the synagogue, they would be separated. There would be women lined up along a space where the women could pray, and then the men would go into a holier space. This is just a, a curious setup. Yet here in this, we, 
This is, there's something beautiful happening here where we're exalting the name of Jesus together. By the way, this is uh, the Jesus movement. Like this is fundamental to the Jesus movement is any and all being able to come to him. This is what Jesus is talking about. People who you ought not have near you, Jesus has near you. This is who Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. The unclean, the spiritual misfits, and the disciples who, by the way, are nothing special in the religious community. This is who hears you, and not just you individually, but y'all. It's like we need to put on a southern dialect. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Do you see what Jesus might be doing here? See, to get at this, I just want us to talk about salt for a second, because salt is this highly valued commodity in the ancient Mediterranean. And, and not just in the Mediterranean, but specifically in Israel. In Israel, if you can, if you can think, just go back to like geography. This was, I think, fourth grade or something like that. And maybe, maybe you can recall the Mediterranean Sea. And the Mediterranean Sea would kind of make this little, this little cup right here. I would do well to have a map here, Kate, maybe. My goodness. So we're going to use our imaginations because we have beautiful imaginations. So a Mediterranean Sea is like the space in between my fingers. And then this little um, crevice of my thumb right here. This is going to be Israel-Palestine. And then in between Israel and Palestine, you have this river that runs down. That's the Jordan River. At the top, you have the Sea of Galilee. And at the bottom, at the lowest point, you have this valley. And in that valley, you have what's called the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is a Salton Sea. And what you then get in the Salton Sea is, are these huge salt deposits. And, and salt was this valued commodity. And you say, well, why is salt such a valued commodity? Because think about what salt can do. Salt was flavorful then, and it is flavorful now, but that's not all. You can also preserve with salt. You, you pack meat in salt, and it pushes back against the decay. You then see that salt is not just something that is, I don't know, in your spice cabinet, no, salt is this, this rich metaphor for life. See, salt was so valuable that Roman centurions, Roman soldiers would actually receive it as their pay. We get the word salary from the word salt itself, salarium, which is from the Roman pay. Like this is, this is so deeply entrenched. When Jesus says, you all are the salt, he's talking about your value, your ability to push back decay. This is a rich metaphor. We actually, you, this is closer to us than, than we know. Like, have any of you ever heard or used the phrase, oh, they're not worth their salt? Maybe your grandma said it. <laughs> we, we get this. There's, this is the idea of pay. It's this correlation. And see, the value of salt rested in its ability to resist decay. And I, and I think you as well, probably take this for granted because we live in a world with refrigeration, like, just think about what's in your fridge right now and the ability to preserve those things. But Jesus is not in that time and that space. And so what he is calling these people to remember, his people is their identity as those who have the capacity to push back against decay. You all are the salt of the earth. And these are not aspirational words. These are not just words for the spiritually motivated to go and get salty. No, Jesus is speaking identity. So if you've stepped into this space this morning and you felt some sort of interior discomfort and you're wondering at maybe, I don't know, the core of who you are, what this is all about, perhaps you could just take a breath and hear Jesus say that you are the salt that he says, this is who you are, that Jesus is announcing, declaring value over you. 
You are the salt of the earth. And I was just, I was struck by the fact that Jesus doesn't say that he's the salt of the earth. So often, Jesus is talking about himself as the light of the world, which we'll see is true in a moment, but um, he talks about himself as the center, and yet here he, he brings his, these people, this kind of ragtag group of followers, and he places them in the center of this metaphor that they are the ones of value, that they are the ones who are going to push back against decay. They are the ones who can bring and sustain life. And pay attention to the contrast here. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. See, there is salt that flavors, there is salt that preserves, there is salt that resists decay, and then there is what theologian John Stott calls road dust. This is salt that has lost its flavor. Perhaps if you think of these large salt flats where the, the water has evaporated and, and functionally all of the flavor has gone out and it's just this flaky substance. And I'm not a chemist. Uh, I cannot, like Karen, run an experiment in my sleep. It would go terribly wrong. That's what all my labs in undergrad told me. And... I, all I learned on the internet was that salt is a stable compound. <laughs> like the ion binding those, like what is that, the, the, the sodium chloride, the binding those things together, they like each other a lot. And it takes electricity to break those apart. So then what does it mean to lose your saltiness? Jesus is talking not about something just being thrown out because it's no longer a thing. No, it is that, but he's talking about something breaking in upon it or it being diluted to the point that it has no potency. This is corruption or dilution, and those are intentional words. But, but when salt remains salt, it can do what it's meant to do to preserve life. And the implications of, of this are, are quite large, but the movement of it is pretty small. Here's what I mean, because you could hear a, a thousand talks on being salt and light. Maybe some of you in your undergrad were like, yeah, I was a, Paul, a part of Salt Company. I know this talk. They do this every year at their vision casting. I get it. But just, just catch this, because if salt is about resisting decay, if salt is about um, actually remaining that thing which you are and therefore having boundaries firm enough to hold back corruption... What would that actually look like? Let's say you're in a, in a meeting or you're just hanging out with friends and there's a, a joke that kind of comes to the surface. I don't know, maybe, maybe there's a person on the internet who tweets something inflammatory, hypothetical. And there's some conversation that takes place around that inflammatory hypothetical tweet. And then the person who sent said tweet starts being degraded. And they're not only dragged through the mud, they're defaced. And then there's other tweets being sent out because I'm learning that this is how humanity interacts with one another. is less face-to-face -face and more screen-to-screen-to-face. Yes, that's commentary on technology. Um, but in, this, in that moment, you not only participate, you contribute in a way that, that in a, like the moment you do it, you go, oh, that felt a little funky. A anybody for this? Hypothetical scenario. I, this is me, by the way, in this scenario. <laughs> and let's just say that you feel that little pang, that twist on your insides, that discomfort while all of a sudden you're living discordant to your values. What, what might it look like to be salt right there? 
perhaps it looks like at the end of that meeting or that conversation or that lunch of saying, I, you know, I just, we were talking about that tweet, and I'm sorry, like, I, I, that's not who I want to be in the world. Will you forgive me? And maybe that sounds cheesy to you, but I, and this is not like a proverbial pat on the back. I've tried this out before. It is terribly uncomfortable. And in fact, the look that you receive or that I received on the other side was not just like an awkward look. It was puzzled. And the, the, the scenario in case was like we were going to extend because of our, our lease, our continuation of encouraging people to wear masks. And this person, they were frustrated by it. And so we're walking out of the space. And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I make some sort of verbal accommodation. And it was in that moment that I felt that little twist of like, what, what was that? And so it wasn't that moment, but it was weeks later that I am still just being annoyed by this thing, that I bring this, and then this puzzled look of like, why are you bringing this? Because when we talk about the preservation of salt, I don't think it's just for the life of other people. I think it's for our life with Jesus. Like integrity is itself about a wholeness that we can receive and live from. So this, this metaphor that Jesus is inviting these people into, it is rich. It's not just to preserve the life or resist decay out there. No, it's actually to preserve our life with Jesus. There is beauty to be had in this me metaphor that I think we can reclaim because it's not about just simply shaming those out there and reclaiming territory on the inside. No, this is about being who Jesus invites us to be. And Jesus is here to remind us of this. Salt is about faithfulness, and it has the potency to transform our life, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't just stop there. It actually flows from this, and so we pick up with Jesus in verse 14. Go there with me, if you will. You are the light of the world. Jesus says this provocative metaphor that's familiar, and then he gives kind of three additional images to help us make sense of this. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So salt is about faithfulness, a faithfulness and integrity to Jesus that, that allows us to resist decay. Light is about mediating God's presence. The salt is about faithfulness and the ability to resist decay. Light is about mediating God's presence. So if you go all the way back to the beginning, which we're a fan of doing around here because our foundation stories are actually, it's not in Matthew, it's in Genesis. This is when God's declaration over humanity is very good. If you ever are looking of who, if you're asking those weird existential questions like who am I, what am I here for, go all the way back to the beginning to see the words of, that the creator God speaks over humanity. And in that moment, what you'll see is that God actually equipped humanity, female and male, to be his divine representatives in all all of creation, that humanity would bear out God's goodness in all of the world. When, when that human project turns inward, this is what the scriptures just call sin, God doesn't move away, God moves toward humanity to continue this effort of restoration and reclamation of all things. And God chooses from 
all of the people, this is now Genesis 12, this is Abraham and his story, he chooses him and his family to be a light to all the nations. And it's not that it's then these people now have the divine promise and that they're going to hold tightly. No, it's that they would be a blessing to all of the people, that they would actually be the ones through whom God moves. You are the light of the world. This is, this is actually our story. This is not just a, a nice hashtag or a t-shirt or some sort of, I don't know, branding thing. This is a part of who you are. And so we get to learn to live out of who we are. And, and the thing that strikes me is that that language, you are the light of the world, that's priestly language. See, God's intention was never to have a nation with priests. And pay attention here. The prepositions do the work here. It's not to have a nation with priests, but a nation of priests. Do you see the distinction? If you have a nation with priests, it means that there's those who are designated to mediate God's presence. But if you have a nation, a people of priests, all who mediate God's presence, what that means is male, child, female, whomever, they all tell the story of God's goodness. So let's, um, I didn't grow up with Pentecostal roots, but um, I, I wanna like get a little interaction here. So turn to your neighbor and say, you were made on purpose. Okay, now try, try it with the other neighbor. Give him a little love here. You, you were made on purpose. Now turn back to the other neighbor who you left out and say, you are the light of the world. And do it one more time. See, taken alone, these are powerful images. When you think about a city set on a hill, I mean, we think you can, I didn't, I grew up in San Diego, so I thought that everything was always lit, and then I moved to the Midwest, and I realized that roads that are outside of a city, they don't light those roads. There's no street lights, and so you go down a country mile, which I think is longer than an actual mile, and it's not just dark, like I can't see anything. It is dark where you can't see your hand in front of your face, kind of a dark. And so then when you look back to the city from which you came, you can actually see the phosphorus like lighting up the clouds. This is a powerful image. These things speak, but I think that when we allow the entire story of Jesus, our foundation story, that this is who we are. We are to be a people who mediate God's presence. When we allow that to shape our imaginations, these already powerful images, they kind of take on new texture and vitality and vibrancy. So let's just, let's just receive this from Jesus because in this moment, Jesus is actually doing some cultural appropriation, which is like a faux pas right now. But let's just pay attention to this because Jesus is taking language distinct for Israel He's taking language that is only meant and at this point that you are the light of the world and he's placing it on who? Who was back in Matthew 4, 23? Who was back there? That's the unclean. It's the spiritual misfits. It's the quote unquote outsiders. Jesus is saying to them and the disciples that you are the ones through whom God's goodness will be displayed. His presence will be mediated. And this is um, some Bible nerdery coming your way. This is a provocative claim because there are other communities at the time of Jesus who are interested in being, quote unquote, the light to the nations. See, there's a group called the Pharisees, and the Pharisees get a lot of shade in the, the church today. You may hear him say, you don't want to be an accidental Pharisee. And I think if Christians were living like Pharisees, life would look a lot different. I'm just 
just saying, but there is, there is a, a religiosity, a spirit of idealism that captures the Pharisees' imagination for sure. But this is a group who wanted the people of Israel to take up the code of priests. They were like, if we're all holy, and this is where it starts to become like spiritual manipulation, if we're all holy, then God will do this. That's not really how the divine relates to humanity because God's like, I'm already, I'm here with you. You don't have to twist me. Like, I'm for you. You don't have to manipulate me. I'm with you. This is Emmanuel. But you have the Pharisees who are trying to drive God's renewal through religious vigor. Then you have another group who's just going to cozy up with power, the Sadducees. You have another group who is going to withdraw, and they're going to withdraw to the Dead Sea. They're going to be the true salt and light, the Essenes. And then you have this uh, violent fervor in the air. These are the zealots. I think that this is actually the, the mood of our time. And I'm, I'm a pastor commentating like on this. I have no idea. I could be so wrong about this. But when I encounter like the animosity and the, the, toward those who are outside of our tribe, it is intense. So when you sit in the middle and you advocate for life and you advocate for the wholeness of life to the point that you start to question militarization, it becomes really weird in the land that we live in. See, when, you, when you're in the middle, when you're going a third way, it's confusing. And Jesus could have chosen any of these ways. He could have cozied up with the religious or the political. He could have withdrawn. He could have taken up the sword. That's the impulse throughout the Gospels. Do you remember that scene where they want to make him king by force? This is in the air, but this is not God's heart. There is another way. Jesus speaks to the outcast, and he says, no, you, you, gateway, you are the light. This is how I'm interested in renewing humanity. Just listen to God's heart. This is, this is about the messianic figure in Isaiah. This is how God's interests kind of are playing out through Jesus. This is Isaiah 49.6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. Just hear this again because it's a little awkward in English. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. See, the whole idea here is that Jesus' goodness, it is so rich, so full, so thick, that it actually cannot be contained in our heart. And I'm not talking about like cheesy door-to-door evangelism. By the way, like that got me. I had like one persistent person invite me, so I'm not here to like shame tracks and evangelism through that way. I think there's maybe more creative ways and some nuance we can bring there for sure. But I, I want us to hear this, that Jesus' love is so intense that it cannot be contained just to a single people group. It's actually going to go out to the ends of the earth. Do you know where we are? Look, look outside for a moment. You're in Des Moines, Iowa. Worthy of celebration. We're nowhere near the Mediterranean. For two millennia, the spirit of the living God has sustained a faithful remnant in the church such that we are here trusting in Jesus or trying to? This is ridiculous. 
And it's so beautiful because of the faithfulness of the saints before being who they are, we get to see Jesus. And I'm not saying that you're the only Bible somebody will see. No, I'm saying that you might actually be the one through friendship and openness displays the love of Jesus. This is this has been, um, I'm not saying this needs to be true for you, but however, this has been shifting and like monumental for me. It is not your responsibility or my responsibility or your neighbor's responsibility to turn the light on for anyone. The spirit of the living God gives light in life. However, it is our responsibility. It is a movement of obedience to open ourselves up. Jesus has that little image, like why would you light a, a lamp and then put it under a bowl? That's silly. <laughs> the intention is that you would put it in a place that it casts light beautiful. If, if you have done any sort of photography, I just, I, I mean, I, the, getting to see Logan Christian, who if you don't know, he's a beautiful soul and um, he like, goes with him, there's a camera there, and he's, like, going up to things. We're, we're getting coffee the other day, and I see him, like, looking at the espresso machine. I'm assuming he sees a reflection of things on there because he's, like, right here. Like, there's a vision that some people have for light, how it plays in a room. When you place a light in a beautiful space, it does something, and yet if it's closed off, it, not, it does not do that thing. See, there is a gift that we actually have to give, which is the warmth of the love of God that we have experienced. It's not our light. No, it's, it's, it's become who we are. And as we live as who we are, we get to open ourselves up. But let me just ask you, is this a protective position or a vulnerable position? Let's just say this aloud. This is a vulnerable position. Does this resemble anything to you? For people who are flooded with Christian iconography, this should mean everything because this is the position that Jesus assumes. He is the one who is the most open, the most vulnerable, who exposes himself to the greatest risk. I, if that is a hard image for you to capture, just think, think of, a, of a room that is dark, but then in, in the other room, there's a light on and that door is cracked. Just close your eyes with me and just picture this because this, you're sitting in a room, your bedroom, and it's not even a light that's turned on. It's just the light of the day. And slowly that light is, it is just breaking in. And as that door is opened, what does the light do? It floods into that space. If salt is about faithfulness and resisting decay, light is about mediating the presence of God, of opening ourselves up. And yes, there is risk there. And yet there's also beauty to be had there. This everyday faithfulness and radical openness. This is what Jesus is talking about when he calls these people salt and light. And I'm not thinking that Jesus is just talking about general niceties, like... Just go out there and be nice. Go get them, tiger. That's called moral influence theory. That's really not what Jesus is talking about. 
Jesus is talking about like a radical reorientation to the kingdom of God. And by God's grace, this community might become that. And slowly but surely, we are just trying to open ourselves up. And I, I like, I have that like idealism of a Pharisee where I want us to move in a certain direction. And yet, you hear me talk a lot about invitation because any moment that invitation turns into manipulation or coercion, it is not the spirit of Jesus. So what we get to do is we get to take what Jesus has called us and then learn to live from it. And sometimes this is obnoxiously slow and it's awkward and we put things in front of the light because we think it's going to look better. And yet Jesus is just saying, open yourself up. See, we could practice this cultural jujitsu, build mental defense, kind of create that private sanctuary of the mind. We could practice Ketman. We could do that. We, we could kind of follow Jesus with our fingers crossed behind our back. Of, we could say a thing publicly, but go, I didn't really mean it because I got, I got this action going on. Or we could open ourselves up to everyday faithfulness in the mundane and radical openness. See, life with Jesus, it's going to require risk. And as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, I think this is what we'll find is true is that this is the invitation of Jesus. By the way, um, we've not done the Sermon on the Mount here before. We don't know what's coming, except for the fact that Jesus is going to talk about loving your enemy, about praying for those who persecute you. Do you think the Sermon on the Mount has any sort of relevance for the life that we're living today? I certainly hope so. What I would like us to do is just to stand and to, with our bodies, respond to Jesus. So we get to take what Jesus says and receive the invitation. And so my invitation to you this morning is simply to be open to the goodness of Jesus. I would invite us, if you haven't, um, if, if you need the bread and the cup, just kind of raise your hand. It's to your left. And, and one will find its way. Um, but this is something we want to receive week in and week out, is that Jesus does not just simply say a thing and then remove himself from the scenario. Jesus enters fully in. 
And in a moment, we get to respond in song. And I, I know that we're not all the same, and that's really a gift. Um, and, and yet there is one of the most beautiful things that I get to encounter week in and week out is to hear you sing. And maybe that sounds really creepy. That's, I'm okay with it. Um, but I can only speak for myself in this. Like Singing these songs functions like a prayer to index my heart toward gratitude. And so in the next few moments, I, I, wanna, I just invite you uh, to receive Jesus at, like afresh to say that I actually, I don't want last week's portion. I want you today. I want the full portion. Jesus, I want to receive your words of life and affirmation. I want to, I want to be the one who mediates your presence. I want to experience that goodness. And so would you allow Jesus to refresh your heart? Like you actually can open yourself to Jesus and there is risk there because he might expose the parts of your inner woman or inner man that turn away. But Jesus does not condemn you. Jesus invites you to life. And so I just invite you, church, to be who you are, to remember who you are. And as we sing these songs, would you take the bread, the body broken for you? Would you take the blood, poured out the forgiveness of sins, and respond to Jesus. So let us worship. Our Father who in heaven reigns, how great and mighty is your name. Your kingdom come, your Now here on earth as is above Oh, give to us our daily bread And keep our hungry spirits fed May all our satisfaction be In you whose grace has set us free Give us hope, give us faith Help us trust in your guidance From the depths of your grace You have richly provided Thank you, thank you Yeah. 
as we close out, um, I'd like to go back to that second song we did this morning, Praise Him Forever. Um, and yeah, just if, if this is a new song for us, if you're familiar with it, sing it out. If you're not, um, you know, just pray these words together with us. Savior, and it changed me forever. 
I've encountered the goodness, felt the truth and the power. Oh, I've been saved by Jesus, and I will praise him forever. My heart to you I bring My hope it holds on to see That your spirit would move in me That your presence would pull me deep I've encountered the spirit Felt the love of the Father, found my life in the Savior, and it changed me forever. I've encountered the goodness, felt the truth and the power. Oh, I've been saved by Jesus, and I will praise Him forever. Just to lead me in your goodness, your mercy, they will follow. Lord, just to lead me, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Lord, just to prosper Lord just to lead me your goodness your mercy they will follow Lord just to lead today's benediction is from Romans chapter 15 May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in peace and serve the Lord.